At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to the Feedback Loop edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and we have had an astonishing amount of awesome feedback from you guys, mostly in the form of emails. So we're going to spend a little bit of time going through some of those letters and responding to them. And after that, we're going to talk about cool kid tech companies and why they aren't using investment bankers for their mergers and acquisitions. Then we'll move on to Amazon's new local register payment system, they call it. It's going to be a full show, but first let me introduce our regular guests. There's Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. Hi, Felix. Hello, Kathy. <laughs> and Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Good to be here today. I'm so happy that you're happy to be here. Anyway... First and foremost, the mailbag. I've been looking forward to this all week because we promised it last week, and now I get to do it. Um, I have to say first that we got lots of mail about my thought experiment last week where I talked a bit about a magician doing a card trick, and I'm not going to talk any more about that because next week we have a very special guest, Emmanuel Derman himself from Columbia University, and we're going to devote an entire segment to that little card trick thought experiment and Felix for the people who might not have caught last week's episode do you want to just tell us who Emmanuel Derman is for Emmanuel Derman I will tell you Jordan is a quant as 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 Kathy will attest he's a he used to work at Goldman Sachs he's a very clever chap he teaches finance at Columbia and if you're interested in the ways that financial and economic models can lead people astray I can highly recommend his book Models behaving, behaving Badly. It's a great little book. But moving on, we will talk about him and what he has to say next week. This week, we are going to revisit a little bit of the data science discussion that we had last week. Um, we got an email from Matthew Levinson, who's 
a statistics PhD, and he didn't go to Harvard, Kathy.、Mm. And he says that while you could probably get yourself a job at a place like Barnard, he'd be aiming for a job at a very second-rate university. And would have much worse worse chances overall than competitors from Stanford or Berkeley or Harvard. And he says, considering all that, tripling my salary to do interesting work with large, complex data in a fun, fast-paced, more responsive environment doesn't seem like a terrible deal. Sure, the end goal of my analysis turns from basic answering basic science questions to making more money for whatever company I'm working for. But I chose a position at a company that doesn't do or sell things I find objectionable, and seems a pretty good corporate citizen. I most definitely did not consider going into finance, for instance, where I'd feel like I was actively making the world a worse place. So, is is I mean, we were a bit rude, perhaps, about you know these wonderful, high-minded data scientists just you know ending up doing A/B testing for Yelp. But is 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 there a Case to be made that really the life of a scientist is often not that great. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I, I at least tried to make it a little bit last week when I mentioned that science should try to make itself a sexier place to stay,、um, because there's no doubt that、um, these startups and these places that hire data scientists are they're they're fun. They are intentionally fun places to work. And they do succeed, and they pay better, and they're in pl- places like New York City and Seattle and San Francisco, and those are places people want to live. So I am not by any means complaining about the the people who choose to become data scientists. I'm one of them, and I wrote a book for people who want to do that. I just wanted to make the point that they are, while they're equipped technically,、um, they're not necessarily equipped for the social impact they actually have in their job.、Uh, I, you know, I think there's also. Uh, a point I would have liked, I, I should have made last week, and, and in defense of the people who are, you know, choosing to, I don't know, I, I feel like the word, the phrase "sellout" is so like 1992, but I mean, who are who are choosing to go into industry rather than stick with it,、um, you know. Right now, in the sciences, like in, in certain fields, like biomedical science, for instance,、um, your first job, non-postdoctoral fellowship job, is typically going to happen around age thirty-six, thirty-seven, maybe thirty-five if you're lucky.、Um, and, and for listeners who aren't familiar with like academic hierarchy or how academia works, a postdoc is essentially a research position. It's for a couple years. It's temporary. You may be doing independent research of your own to kind of burnish your resume. You may be essentially be assisting someone else's research and not really doing much that's going to be impressive. To a future employer, it kind of depends on who exactly you're working for.、Um, but a lot of scientists right now, and the people who are qualified to go and do data science for Yelp, for Facebook, whoever,、um, are getting locked into these positions on, and become kind of an obligatory、uh, stop on the way to a full-fledged academic career. And a lot of people just, after six years of a PhD and whatnot, don't want to deal with that many more years of uncertainty and having to, to delay making money off of their skills. And I, I think it's very reasonable to say, okay, these people are willing to give me a, a, a healthy, stable paycheck for work that might not, it might not, might not be God's work, might not be figuring out, you know, how,、uh, you know, the genome, but it is worthwhile and, and it is helping way, companies grow. Two things: it is a pyramid scheme. Academia is. Number one, we could go into that for an entire episode, but we won't. Number two, it's not really stable.、Yep. But what's great is once you're a data scientist and that's on your LinkedIn profile, you can get another job. <laughs> so I mean, let me. Then we got another email from a chap called Chad Miller, who's a science PhD student, which is 
related to this. Um, he, he says that when you're in academia, anything other than academic science, even working as a scientist in industry, is contemptuously called, quote, leaving science. And it's, there's actually not much information within academia for what the non-academia options are in terms of your career. And so he asked um, if we could elaborate a little bit on our collective you with respect to management consulting. <laughs> um, Matthew Levinson was saying that he wouldn't go into finance because he thinks that's just making the world a worse place. Um, Kathy, does management consulting also make the world a worse place? Look, if you ask a management consultant this question, which I've done, they pretty much always say it is making the world a worse place. That's one of the reasons <laughs> I feel comfortable saying, ew. And if you ask them, what do you actually do as a management consultant? You hear, I'm just going to come up with the top three answers to that. One of them is we we fire the people that they want to fire, but they don't have the balls to fire. And the, and the next one is uh, we give them intelligence about their competitors and the next one is um, we just make random guesses in th with with no information about how they should change their company that they spent the last 40 years building. And I, I haven't heard a management consultant defend management consulting. I don't know about you guys. Also, a lot of the companies we think of as management consulting have, have lots and lots of different arms. They actually do some technology consulting that's worthwhile. Like Accenture, for instance, doesn't just do management consulting. It actually builds tech, uh, products for companies, too, now. Um, and you know, it's it's not as if going to one of these companies is like selling your soul or something. But, you know, I, I think the line on management consulting is sort of a lot of the time your purpose is just to validate the decision that the uh, executives already made um, or to produce a report that they can point to and say, look, we tried to address this program by uh, our problem by commissioning this report. And that's the sum total of it. It's sort of cover for them. That said, I, I you know, I, I've never worked in the industry. I'm sure there's good that comes of it. I, I work off of what I've, you know, a few people I know well, who have done I, it. I have worked in the industry, actually. In one of my more miserable career moves, I commuted <laughs> from um, New York to Chesterfield, Missouri for a few months, um, consulting on a freelance basis for a life reinsurer. This was confirmed in me everything I believed about management consultants. And yes, with, our job was basically to produce a long PowerPoint deck with lots and lots of bullet points, which would reinforce what the CEO wanted us to say. And I think, contra to Jordan's point of view here, that they really are selling their soul. That there's, there, there really is very little. Um, well, we agree on something. <laughs> well, there, there is very little social utility to, to, to management consulting. And actually, my friend Duff McDonald well, I just, I wrote a book okay. about McKinsey, which yeah. is by far the most famous of the management consultancies. And I blurbed it. And my blurb was a heartbreaking tale of wasted talent. These people are actually <laughs> quite smart. And just about anything else they could be doing would be better for the world can, than what can they Can I are make doing. an argument in wow. favor, though? Like, just as someone who has friends who've gone into management consulting recently, and one... One thing they do say is it's a fantastic education in the industries that you are consulting for. You essentially get to learn on the job how these industries work, and maybe then at one point you go into them, or you create a startup that you think will address the problems you found in them. So there there might be some personal benefit, even if maybe not much social utility, um, aside from the paycheck. You learn how to be really arrogant. Do you? For example. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
That's I'm a doing my way be- of saying I'm that. doing my best here to, as the person who hasn't been <laughs> involved in defense. I'm going to leave that you know, just in case that we have any management consultants who are listening to this show. <laughs> no, we just lost. Jordan, you have a friend somewhere. Um, perhaps. <laughs> Not really. Um, so sadly, we have no real disagreement here. If any of you <laughs> out there would care to put together a defense of management consulting, um, do email us on slatemoney at slate.com. You can, you can ask us to be You can anonymous. ask us to be anonymous, but that's, you know, that would just be... Anyway. <laughs> Very quickly, uh, someone listened to my pellucid elucidation last week of the difference between credit unions and banks and says, I still don't know what the difference is between a bank and a credit union, in which case all I can say is, there isn't one. They're both basically banks. They both do what banks do. You have checking accounts, you get loans. The ownership structure is different. Maybe you can say that there's a little bit of sort of ethical difference between them. But Can I just throw in one, two things? Go. First of all, it's possible that a credit union might actually have some kind of goal for social utility in their investing. We're going to come back to that. But second of all, an important difference is credit unions do not have accounts for businesses. Uh, mine did. Well, typically they don't, though. I, I mean, that's actually – it surprises me to hear that. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of credit union people. So when we talk about, like, the Move Your Money campaign, it's a, it's a limited amount that will actually change because we're only talking about individuals in general. Well, I can tell you that the Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union was very keen on supporting local businesses. Oh, that's interesting. Well, okay, I'm, I'm not completely correct. Mo- and so staying on ethics, we're going to move on to the, the last letter this week, which came from Greg Sabin in Sacramento. And he says there's an issue which has been in the back of my mind, and he wanted to put it out to us, which is, is it ethical to trade shares in the stock market? Or to put it another way, is there any social utility in the stock market? And his point here is that once a company has raised money by selling the shares in an IPO or in a secondary offering, at that point, when you buy and sell the shares, the money is just going to the person who owns the shares. It's not going to the company anymore. You're not investing in the company anymore. If I spend $100 on shares of IBM, IBM sees none of that money. So if I want to sort of invest in productive parts of the economy, should I not be investing in the, in the stock market at all? It's a great question. Jordan, what's the answer? Um, I, I think that I – I, well, okay. I want, first, it's not as if the only time a company benefits from its stock or selling stock is at the IPO. Companies do own, do own their own stock. They buy back their own stock. They reissue stock to raise money. They use stock in perhaps most importantly in mergers and acquisitions, also to obviously pay their executives. Um, but oftentimes they'll use, you know, uh, one example is right now uh, essentially 21st Century Fox, right? Uh, they were talking about buying up Time Warner or Time Warner didn't happen. And so they said, we think our stock's incredibly cheap right now. We're going to buy a bunch of it. Um, that might have just been an excuse to try and, you know, make the shareholders happy and make the board happy. Uh, it could also be that they're gearing up for another attempt to maybe buy a company once they think their stock goes up and they're going to be, have even more leverage to then do a stock deal. Um, so I don't think – I think it's it's a little bit of a fallacy that the only time – uh, you can do some good in the markets is by buying at the IPO. But I, I, at the other hand, I, I, you're, not, you're not always directly funding a company. By- and, and the fact is that if you look at the way that the money flows, especially nowadays, 
companies before they go public tend to receive real equity investment from venture capital and, and, and private equity and places like that. Um, after companies go public, you know, there's an initial investment by the public in the IPO. And then after that, you just get this constant stream of stock buybacks and dividends. And over time, the companies wind up giving back to their shareholders much more than they took in in the first place, which is, you know, is, is, is as it should be, because otherwise the shareholders wouldn't invest in the first place. They want to return on that investment. But Net-net, it's the investors are actually pulling money out of corporate America rather than putting money into it. I think I, that's that's true in the long run. On the other hand, you can, you can, if you think about the big picture, going public in the first place wouldn't work if there wasn't a secondary market, right? If you could never sell these shares, <laughs> like the IPO, no one would buy into it. I mean, maybe they would if there was just a, a dividend immediately, but that's not usually the case. So people probably wouldn't buy a stock if they couldn't, if it wasn't liquid, you know? So, I mean, that's the the fact that there is this market buying second, third hand, 40 millionth hand, whatever, is what makes uh, the markets function. And having, you know, liquid public markets is really, really good for the economy. If you look, it's what has allowed... the have allowed U.S. corporations to grow the way they have. If you look at countries in Europe where, you know, small mom and pops don't really have access to uh, equity markets the same way they do in the U.S. or just aren't big enough to take advantage of them, they don't grow the same way. This is a problem in Italy, for instance. Um, they, they can't really they, – they haven't been able to build. Um, and so I, I do think that there is – even if it's not obvious that you your dollar is going to help – you know, Microsoft or whoever, or Coca-Cola expand in some ways, or Facebook expand in some ways. I, I think indirectly, there it, it, it does. So I, I actually interpreted this question really differently from you guys. Okay. Um, I thought about it as like, you know, there there is some kind of interaction between shareholders and companies one way or another through dividends or buy, stock buybacks. So I, I'm going to assume that. And then I thought of it as like, the question is, which companies are ethical like what actually adds social value in terms of what you can invest in so of course the if you want to just talk about how direct is my um f is my efforts then you could just okay well maybe angel investing in 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 companies that you care about is more directly beneficial and has more impact than buying stuff on the stock market but ignoring that question of the how direct your impact is um i thought of it as like a question of how do you how do you know what's ethical? Which companies are ethical? And one of the answers to that is there's this new wave of companies who are incorporating as what's known as B Corps or benefit corporations where they have stock. It is often liquid and traded. Sometimes it's less liquid and traded. Um, and by the way, liquidity, I think, is overrated. As long as there's some kind of way to buy and sell, I don't think you need to be able to buy and sell continually eight hours a day. The... Most famous B Corps, I think, I mean, Patagonia is one of them. There's, mm -hmm. there's a few others. And what they say is, yes, we have a board and the board wants us to make money and we want to make money, but that's not our only purpose in life. And we also have broader ethical obligations to the world that we live in and to our employees and other stakeholders. And we're going to try and make the world a better place. And that's the purpose of the corporation rather than just maximizing profits. And those companies, the B Corps, do tend to be, I think, more ethical. Right. So exactly. That's what I was going to bring up is that companies that actually explicitly have a mission that is social. And 
And and then I actually went into this a little bit more. I talked to these guys from mission markets who actually think about this, like how do we get people to care about social impact investing? And the ironic thing about that, though, is that they have set up a few index funds for social, like what they consider social good, positive impact. But you have to be rich to in order to invest in it, which is kind of this funny thing. So you're like, what what can the 99% do? Um, you know, what can the average person do to invest sort of like their retirement fund in something that's socially valuable? And the answer comes back to, sorry, you're not rich enough to actually invest in it. Right. And, and also, you shouldn't. A lot of these investments are things like highly illiquid investments in solar energy plants where you can hope to get a reasonable dividend stream in like a decade's time or something but god help you if you ever want to sell it tomorrow right so there's a lot of ethical investment investing which you really should have to be rich yes before you yeah it is risky it is risky um, the answer is i think there's no good answer right now actually i think i think like the market has explicitly made itself outside the rules of ethics and it's hard it's, we're gonna have to wedge them back in if we if we can and, and talking of markets i just want to cover this Briefly, I have a piece in today's Financial Times about the way that Silicon Valley has actually done quite a good job of disintermediating finance in one sense in that when you see the big M&A deals um, in Silicon Valley, whether it's Facebook buying WhatsApp or Apple buying Beats or any of those, invariably these days, well, not invariably, but a lot of the time, most of the time, the buying company is not using an M&A advisor. They've managed to push out the influence of finance, at least in this one little corner of technology M&A, which I think is a good thing. I, I thought, yeah, there, there was a number that the New York Times reported that I thought was fascinating. Um, uh, according to DealLogic, uh, in the last year, 69% of tech acquisitions worth over $100 million didn't have a banker. Uh, Ten years ago, it was twenty-seven percent didn't have a banker involved. Well, they, they, by the way, this is just on the buy side. On the sell side, there are still bankers. So, uh, yeah. the acquired company hires bankers, but the acquiring company does not. And I mean, that, that, that's what's. Saying. I mean, there's a real change here that these companies have uh, that the Facebooks and you know the Googles of the world have said we can do this in house without the influence, without essentially giving money to a Wall Street bank that we don't need to. And, you know, it, it's funny, for, you know, real world example, of this is, is the kind of the scene that was reported of the WhatsApp acquisition. You know, essentially it was Mark Zuckerberg and the CEOs of, of WhatsApp uh, sitting down over chocolate covered strawberries and hashing out the future of their company. And, you know, if in the old days, it would have been a bunch of bankers in a room, like fighting it out over the exact nature of how, you know, the decimal points on how much stock founders is going to be. like to deal with founders, especially yeah. in Silicon Valley. And if you, and I, I remember making this point at the time that if Microsoft had wanted to buy WhatsApp, they would have brought in their bankers and the bankers would have gone along to WhatsApp armed with all manner of spreadsheets and, and stuff. And the CEO of WhatsApp would have just ignored them and told them to take a hike. That in many ways, the only way to buy these companies is to abjure the M&A bankers. So, uh, Felix, I think, I think what I took away from the article, which was really good, and I have one complaint about it, but first I'm going to ask a question. Um, which is is it is it basically because banks deal with debt and and these guys just are awash in money they just don't need they're not dealing with debt that's part of it that the reason why people use m and a bankers is actually not because they particularly want or need m and a advice but because they need financing for their deals and because none of these big tech deals are financed, 
that they're all either paid for in cash or in stock and that they don't need to borrow money from Jimmy Lee at JP Morgan in order to do the deal, their incentive to use a bank is much lower. Right. Okay. That's And that's super interesting. And it makes sense. Like when you think about Apple has all this money, all these VCs got rich with selling their companies. Now they have this money and they don't need banks. It just, it makes sense. I thought also there was a point that you made in your article that I, I think listeners would appreciate, which is just that bankers don't have any insight necessarily into the future of these companies that are being uh, into the future of technology, or especially no more insight than Mark Zuckerberg does. And since they're not buying them based on cash flow. It, there's really no point in bringing them in for expertise. Actually, that was going to be my complaint, which is like oh, this really? idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like it, but I want to talk more about it, which is, first of all, as an ex-quant, I, I, you know, I'm not particularly proud of everything I did, but I do think <laughs> that people in finance are actually pretty good at modeling things that can be measured. And it's it, basically, I think your point was, if I and tell me if I'm wrong, that bankers just can't measure these things that, that are, make make um, Silicon Valley deals good or bad. They can't measure them. And and Zuckerberg's can. And my, my complaint or my, I maintain that actually no one can measure them. Oh, yeah, no, I agree with that. I'm not, I'm not saying that there is something which can be measured. And it can be measured by Mark Zuckerberg, but it can't be measured by Goldman Sachs. I'm saying that it really can't be measured. And so as a result of that, the determination of how much is too much for Mark Zuckerberg to pay for these companies is not something which you can really tr- arrive at in a quantitative way. Okay. It's yeah. instinct. You know, you can't, just because it can't be measured doesn't mean you shouldn't do the deal. That's true. And on which note, Kathy, we're going to move on to your favorite story of the week, which is yeah the Amazon payment and and okay so you I mean I've already said on a previous show that I'm boycotting Amazon and I got ready <laughs> I got ready to be like really offended by this and and I'm not okay but I do want to explain why I might have been offended and why I'm not because <laughs> I think it's interesting so Amazon just announced something called local register which is a way of letting small businesses take payments um, and. Uh, you know, versus something like Square, which is another kind of startup-y company that has um, has already been doing this for a few years, and versus other things like credit cards, um, which which like Visa or Mastercard that b- small businesses could use as well. Well, might- well, no. To be clear, all of these are different ways of accepting Visa and Mastercard. That Square is a way of accepting credit cards. Local Register is a way of accepting credit cards. And then there's lots of companies like VeriSign and others who've been in this market forever, which is just ways of accepting credit cards. Visa and Mastercard are not actually in that business. I'm sorry. Yes, you're you're correct. There are different ways of accepting um, credit cards, but they sort of are full in services versus like you have to set a bunch of things up. That's as as I understand it. So you with if you want to set up your small business with Amazon Local Register, you do it and it's done for you. They it's like a third party that they set up all the details and you don't have to be an expert on that and you can focus on your product. Now, the thing that's um, that's going to be very attractive to small businesses for this Amazon Local Register is that you're paying 1.75% uh, um, versus Square where you're paying a, a 2.75% of your of the that, that's how much of the of the purchase price just goes for the service. So it's like you're you're shaving off an entire percent and that's going to be really attractive. The the thing I was worried about and and a lot of other people were worried about too um, was that this was just a play that Amazon was having to collect even more information about consumers 
purchases in addition to the stuff they collect on their website. Now, they, people, a couple of people accused them of the, this, and then Amazon released a statement saying that there was actually going to be a fall, fire, uh, firewall between this new business and their other, their other business online shopping. But I just that was the thing that I was worried about. That Well, no, what they're actually doing, I mean, in terms of data, I think they actually know what people are buying to a large degree, and they're getting a lot of data. They're trying, they launched this thing called the Fire Phone, where you just point your phone at anything you want to buy, not partly because they want to be the platform that provides that to you and sends it to you, but also because they want to know what people are interested in, in buying. Um, but what they are doing here, interestingly, is that they are trying to extend their expertise in being able to understand customer behavior to small businesses. So the, the, the idea, one of the big ideas here is that you want to unify your online and offline sales operations. So Amazon has made a big play for a long time to compete with eBay in the market for small businesses selling things on the internet. You're not going to set up your own website. You're not going to invest in your own e-commerce solution. You're just going to put your inventory on Amazon and sell everything through Amazon, through their program for small businesses. Mm. And if you're already selling a whole bunch of stuff online through Amazon, it kind of makes sense to unify that with the stuff you're selling offline in the real world, and then you can have one big unified data set, um, which I think is a perfectly reasonable proposition for Amazon to come out with. Yeah, you know, I think this is, there's another story here that I think is interesting, which is about sort of software eating the world. Um, which is, and it comes back to this competition between uh, Amazon and Square now, and not just them, but also older, like Verisign, older uh, point-of-sale systems. Um, and Square is sort of the Silicon Valley darling. Well, for, it was up well, until about a year ago. Well, it was, sorry. For, yeah, I guess. So it has been has, in this area for the, the, it, the fact that it looked like it was, it was really going to the one that was going to bring change to it, uh, make it possible that you don't need to have this big bulky piece of hardware and you can just buy, take credit cards via your phone, via your iPad in the coffee shop. Um, and But in the end, their system is software, you know, basically. And Amazon, it, it's a lot easier to switch software than it is to switch out of a bulky, uh, your investment in a bulky piece of hardware, which is how people, how merchants used to get trapped essentially into these old kind of prehistoric looking point of sale systems that you wonder why they're still there. It's because they have a lot of money tied up. Well, in, they're also in there because they're cheaper. Let's be clear about this. Square, Square expanded among very small businesses. Yeah. Coffee shops and people at farmers markets and, you know, very low volume mom and pop businesses who could barely pay themselves. Um, bigger retail outlets, with the single exception of Starbucks, never really adopted Square because Square was actually much more expensive than the systems they already had. Um, and Starbucks only did it because Square paid them many, many millions of dollars to do it and also gave them equity. Um, mm. so, and, and, you know, so. What Square was doing, and to a large degree what Amazon Local Register is doing, is going after a tiny little slice of the market. The vast majority of the money that we spend on our credit cards in stores is spent in stores with 
enough scale and enough turnover and enough revenue that actually the big old clunky old-fashioned systems are cheaper and, and make sense for them. Is that So my impression is that they, they require a big upfront investment essentially comparatively in the hardware and then I guess over time the percentage is lower. Is that how it works? Well, no, the, 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 the companies will give you the hardware for free. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to throw in one other thing about the data because I'm fascinated by this, this, this transaction data which is you know it might be a small slice of the market but it could, it could increase if this 1.75% gets low enough and really does start be com- being competitive with the other systems is that it it it's didn't I didn't know this but like credit card companies actually don't know what you purchased line by line from Target um, you know, when they just knows that it, you bought something from Target. When you see your credit card statement, you're like, oh, I spent this much money in Target. Like credit card companies don't more, know more than you do. So one of the things you see is like this effort towards getting the actual line by line items. Like Target has that information clearly, but it doesn't tell that to the Visa or MasterCard. So there, there's other things like, for example, there's these sign out, like these people that will automatically fill out things for you, uh, f- fill out forms for you. Um, on the web, when you buy something on the web, like your shopping bag and you want to sign out, they'll do that automatically. They will collect every, all that kind of information. So I just want to say that there's like going on, there's percentages and how much you're, you're, you know, you have to pay for this as a small business. But at the same time, what's going on is a fight for this data. Right. Because and, – and, and maybe this is the answer to the big problem of credit card interchange. And let me veer a little bit into the background here. When you use a credit card, especially a credit card, because the Dodd-Frank bill um, – no, sorry, not Dodd-Frank, Durbin bill addressed um, debit interchange if you use your debit card. But credit cards often charge 2 3 sometimes even 4% if you're using a corporate rewards card or something like that. Um, there's a huge amount of opacity in terms of how much the merchant gets charged depending on what the card is. And this is set basically by the card issuers. Rather, It's not really a function of the intermediaries, be it Square or um, Stripe or Amazon or VeriSign or anyone else. So the important thing is to try and if – if we want to make – commerce a little bit more frictionless and efficient, you want to bring credit card interchange down, but it's very difficult to do that. Um, Congress has not tried to bite that bullet. But maybe one way of bringing that price down is to introduce a sort of data subsidy that people will um, help, help to bring the price down if in return they can access a certain amount of data. I, I suspect that if that does happen, we wouldn't really benefit very much because the credit card companies would just continue to raise their interchange fees. This is what they always do. And and this is a bigger issue, but somehow we need legislation to stop credit card interchange, interchange fees from just going up and up and up and up because otherwise they, 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 there's no end in sight. Hmm. Another topic. Another topic. Let's move on to the numbers. This is our wonderful weekly numbers round. Um, Jordan, what's your number this week? My number is two, which is... The number of votes, or in Australia right now, in the city of Sydney, there's a, a push right now to give each business two votes in local elections. 
um, which I recently learned, I wrote an article about this, is something that is common throughout the country. And also apparently, I was told City of London uh, in, in England, that local businesses can vote in municipal elections, which I had, I mean, that to Americans who hear this, this sounds totally crazy, but there is some logic, which is essentially local government is sort of more of a service provider um, in Australia, in parts of England. And so they're not dealing with things like education or big infrastructure projects. They're dealing with things like, like trash or zoning rules or development. Um, but this has become a huge like battle in the city of Sydney because uh, basically a progressive mayor who has been a little bit uh, a little bit aggressive towards developers pushing back on them is they think being targeted. Um, they're trying to get rid of her by making this new law that says businesses can vote and are required will be required to vote. So in Australia, businesses, as I wrote uh, this week, businesses are more like people than you would have ever imagined. Wow. Although, it, it, you know, it's not just businesses who are required to vote in Australia. It's everyone. Yes, but this would actually give the, the said businesses two votes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my number is 17, um, which is my favorite number. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm not so excited about why I'm talking about 17, though. That's uh, $17 billion that Bank of America is paying to settle their mortgage stuff, um, which is a lot, mostly legacy from Countrywide and Merrill Lynch, mostly Countrywide. Haven't they done this 18 times I already? I feel like that. I feel like that's why I was like, oh my God, still? And and yet, by the way, this is like the biggest settlement of all. Yeah. 17 really? Billion. 17 million was the biggest? It's I thought it was one. a bigger one. No, no. Maybe they, not. They, they just, we have gotten so exhausted hearing all these big numbers. Like we were like, Wait, wasn't there a trillion one? I can't remember. <laughs> um and, you know, I don't know if you guys have been seeing that <clears throat> country, Countrywide was in the news this week for another reason. Mozilla. Angelo Mozilla. Oh, my God. That guy. That guy. That guy's The man so, with the greatest tan in America. Oh, my is him God. Him and John Boehner. Yeah. He, so he's being charged, I think, in California. The former CEO of Countrywide, which was bought by Bank of America for, what, $50 billion? No, I can't oh, remember. It's it was awful. some astonishingly high amount sum of money, even when it was obvious that they were insolvent. Yes. And the guy, I mean, he really just was, it was a reign of terror as far as the, the United States went with respect to the kinds of uh, the loans that were made. Um, so one of my favorite things from the, whatever it was, a statement of facts for the Bank of America settlement was there was like somebody who was trying to get through this countrywide um, mortgage bank, mortgage-backed security through the um, risk system. And they just kept doing it 50 times until it finally got through. <laughs> But, Talk about gaming but a system. What's, what's the news about Angelo Mozilla? Oh well, they're tr- they're trying to sue him for damages, even though the statute of limitations is over. And um, yeah, and I think it's a civil charge. It is civil. Yeah, they're trying to bring civil case again. You know, and he's already paid millions of dollars. But that guy, I, you, you know, can't. Re- so this, the thing about one of the things about that set your your number seventeen billion that people I'm talking about is that it's not really seventeen billion because they can actually de- deduct. Um, part of part they can deduct part of the settlement from their taxes because it's yes. quote a loss and one thing that, that five billion of it is yeah. tax deductible the thing about that discussion that's kind of i guess ticked me off a little bit is it's acting as if the government isn't aware of this that somehow like bank of america is getting one over on the justice department everyone involved in these negotiations is aware that they can deduct and they're negotiating in they're, they're negotiating with that in mind they're one of the reasons as big as it is is because they know they're going to deduct part of it eventually what i do think the problem with it is is when the justice department gets up and then kind of touts this huge number to give people the impression yes. that they're really so it, it's more of a transparency thing than it is the idea that the bank is somehow like pulling a fast one on anybody um, but the transparency issue i think is real and the justice department would be better served with a smaller settlement and just saying you can't 
conduct it. I think that would be a little bit more in everybody's interest. But. Oh, and also, I mean, they waited this long. I mean, the reason we're tired of hearing about this stuff is they keep on waiting until they, these banks can afford to pay this stuff. Yeah. Um, and is, is that a bad I don't, thing? I don't think it is, but... You don't think it's a bad thing? No, I'm asking if it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm saying, is it is it better... Should we have find them less money earlier? Is it better to wait until they can pay more money and then find them? Should we have put, find them more money earlier and basically put them out of business? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will choose that one. That one. Yes. Okay. We, we dis- I think that this is a two-on-one my, um, here, but that's... And My number is... 19.7%. Now, you know, it's been at least seven minutes since I last talked about Argentina on this show. So I'm going to talk about Argentina on the show again. My number is 19.7%. We, we were wondering, or at least I was wondering, because I've been following the story extremely closely, what was going to be the effect of Argentina's default? Seeing as how it didn't have access to international capital markets anyway, um, you know, what, was there going to be any real effect in the real world apart from the bondholders not getting their coupon payments? And the answer is what we've seen is look at the province of Buenos Aires. The province of Buenos Aires was not in default and was not fighting with bondholders in America, and it did have market access. And what has happened is that the yield on its debt has almost doubled and has gone up to 19.7%, which frankly, makes it impossible for the province of Buenos Aires to issue debt abroad because the interest rate is so high. So there is finally a little bit of of an effect of this default. And I should say also that the Argentine government has done what I said they were going to do and and said that they're going to try and pay this debt domestically, um, even though that would violate the injunction against them. Uh, Felix, there's also an elephant in the room. There's an elephant. We need to discuss... uh, and some of our readers asked that we oh, yeah. discuss it. That's right. Um, recently, John Oliver, we all know you watch John Oliver. My, because, my friend John Oliver, because we're both English. Yeah, both English. So our uh, Felix's friend, John Oliver, um, did an episode where he discussed Argentina. And uh, I, I guess Felix had a cameo on it. And I, I, I did a piece a couple of years ago when I was at Reuters and... I got very excited about Argentina because this is what I do. I get excited about Argentina. And and John Oliver showed a clip of this and said, Felix, Felix, stop it. Stop being so excited. Stop making it so complicated. Um, this was, of course, my finest hour. This was. I really, I thought so, that was a brilliant video, by the way. My Argentina video. Yes. Thank you. You're I, welcome. I thought, so the, the, the mean line, the mean line that John Oliver shared was, he said, and his name is Felix Salmon, because he was bemoaning the fact that you were both British, and he <laughs> said, his name is Felix Salmon, it sounds like something that the queen would feed her cat, which I thought was just so vicious. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand... It's attention. I, we like attention. I was going to say, on the other yeah. hand, the thing is, you know, I wish John Oliver were making fun of me that viciously. Yes. <laughs> like, I, I would feel a I little was, bit proud if I that was happened. Very very happy when 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 it happened. I still am happy that you know any any attention on Argentina is is good news as far as I'm concerned. Um, or this me is for bad that matter. News. The nineteen point seven percent is bad the nineteen point seven percent is bad news. I, I, the one substantively what what John Oliver was saying in this piece, and this is actually a broader um, issue that I have with John Oliver's show. He does a great job of really tearing into issues and covering them in depth and and being and, and bringing them to, to wider attention even if they're quite boring like Argentina or net neutrality or something like that or, or native advertising. He, he's very good at making them funny. But and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. He 
always turns them into a very stark good versus bad, black and white. This is the side you should be on and on the other side of the bad guys. And, you know, so native advertising, there are no shades of gray. It's like it's always a bad thing. Um, you know, Ferguson, of course, there's no yeah. doubt what side, you know, who, who's good and who's bad in, in, his, in his eyes. Um, and in Argentina, he has this very simplistic view that Argentina is good and the hedge fund manager on the other side is bad. And that's fine. Lots of other people have that view as well. The point that I was making in my video is that there's actually something much more interesting here, which is the story of the judge in the middle, um, Thomas Grisset, and how he's trying to get a foreign sovereign who can do what it likes because it's sovereign to, to do what he wants. Um, so I do think that for all that John Oliver does go into a lot of depth, Oh, well, no, and to a lot of length. I don't think – I think that he's weirdly allergic to sort of subtleties in the stories that he covers. Well, he's not a nerd in the same way that you and I are, <laughs> that all three of us are. And I agree with you. I think for me what's interesting about Argentina is that it's both interesting in a legal sense and in a financial sense. And there, for me, there are bad guys and good guys, but like it's lessons learned. And you only learn those lessons if you actually understand the technical details. Well, that's it, friends. Another week, another show. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, please subscribe in the iTunes store. And if you leave us a review while you're there, it will help to spread the word. Just search for Slate Money. And do keep those comments and emails coming. Slate Money at slate.com. We really do appreciate it. The producer for Slate Money is Tracy Samuelson. And the executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. So for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week, where we're going to have Emmanuel Derman. Very excited. Very excited.